0: we're going to continue our study in the Lord's Prayer. I'm appreciative of those who taught while I was gone. I'm very blessed. Thankful to you wherever you all are. Uh, but let's, uh, let's continue in the Lord's Prayer, what's known as the Lord's Prayer. And let me begin by opening in prayer. And then today the focus will be um, your kingdom come. Okay, what does that mean? What does it mean? What did it mean then? What does it mean now? So let's thank the Lord and then uh, we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we again are oh so thankful, and grateful for your grace, the grace that has saved us, the grace that sustains us, and the grace that will one day glorify us as we will one day see you and then be transformed to be like you. We look forward to that day, and until then, Lord, we persevere. Help us to keep our eyes affixed upon your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, the first and the last, the King of Glory, of whose kingdom we are a part of. You refer to us as kings and priests. Lord, help us to understand something of that today as we study the kingdom. That uh, you would indeed be glorified, that your name would be hallowed in and through our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus said, don't be like the hypocrites when you pray. Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Now, prayer... As taught by Jesus, no doubt teaches us many things. First, we're to pray because Jesus commanded us to pray. Amen? It's very simple. We pray because He told us to do so. It's a great privilege that we have. Prayer is an act of worship, so it ought to be reverential and worthy of His majesty. And His primary concern. In this model prayer, known as the Lord's Prayer, is the honor of God the Father. Hallowed be thy name. This is Jesus praying to his Father, teaching us to pray to the Father. And this glory example, Jesus gave us this pattern, and and this was the way he led his ministry. He would oftentimes go away early in the morning before the other disciples were to rise up, um, for a time of prayer with the Father. As we looked at the first week, we pray in Jesus' name. And praying in Jesus' name is, is not a catchphrase that we pin at the end, you know, of every prayer. is like a magic formula. Uh, praying in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ is praying on the basis of his merits, That we gain access to the Father only through Christ. That's why every other religious system in the world is a false system. Therefore, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We pray in Christ's name. We gain access to the Father through the work and worth of his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's something that only true believers can do praying in his name. James 5.16 says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Jesus said in Matthew 6, the things that characterize the prayers of such a man or woman is the private, persistent, passionate prayers of those who go to their prayer closet and ask in secret. And he rewards openly. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So the question this morning is, what is the relationship between this this petition, your kingdom come, and the one preceding it? As you looked at last week, hallowed be your name. That was last week, right? Uh, Yeah. What specifically is meant by the words, your kingdom come? That's what we want to come to understand this morning. And how are we to understand your kingdom come? Now, hallowed be your name concerns God's glory itself. Hallowed be your name concerns the glory of God. Now, when we understand the glory of God, we have to understand the distinction between the intrinsic glory of God and the ascribed glory of God. The intrinsic glory of God is the glory he has in and of himself. There's nothing that you or I can possibly do to add to it, to detract from it, at all. Nothing. Nothing. But I think what's in view here is the ascribed glory of God. That is the glory due his name. The glory due his name from his creatures, from his creation. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Next time we'll look at your will be done. And both of those deal with the means whereby the glory of God is made visible and promoted, okay? Your kingdom come and your will be done. It promotes the ascribed glory of God, the glory that is due to him because of who he is and what he has done. Now, the names of the Lord, as we just read through the panoply of scripture, the names of God... Um, reveal his nature, his character, his attributes, all of which are manifest in creation and holy scripture, that his name is to be glorified on earth to the degree in which his kingdom comes. Okay? His name is to be glorified on earth to the degree in which his kingdom comes and his will be done through those of us that are his, his people. His redeemed people. So as we read the Gospels, we see the centrality of the message that Jesus proclaimed when he came, and that is the kingdom. It's central to his ministry, central to his message. Matthew introduces Jesus' public ministry in chapter 4, verse 23, by saying, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Matthew 4.17, his fundamental message once again. From that time, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luke also writes that Jesus, central to his message, was this, chapter 4, verse 43, I must, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent, to preach the good news of the kingdom. Now, it's interesting to note that the very first preacher of the New Testament, the last of the Old Testament prophets, if you will, none other than John the Baptist. John the Baptist, as Jesus' forerunner, comes forth with the same message as his master. Matthew chapter 3, he came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand so both john as well as jesus the master preached the kingdom they came preaching so we can assume beloved if john the forerunner of jesus as prophesied the forerunner came preaching repentance preaching the kingdom jesus the master the promised one came preaching the kingdom and neither one of them provides an explanation to its meaning Right, We see no explanation. Therefore, we can conclude that the popular understanding of the Old Testament was well understood by the people that it was the message of the kingdom. All of the Old Testament, what is it? It's a, it, it's a promise of the kingdom to come. And when the king came, he commenced or initiated the kingdom. Amen? The kingdom came with the king. And this is what they were anticipating. This is what they were were, were anxiously waiting for. However, the majority of them rejected the king of the kingdom. Because it wasn't a kingdom in the way many perceived. They perceived a political kingdom rather than a spiritual kingdom. So when we get to the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus intends for his followers to live in his kingdom according to a kingdom pattern. And we studied that in the Sermon on the Mount, remember? It took eight months to do that, by the way. Did you know it took that long? Eight months, three chapters. So the chief goal of every believer when we get to uh, uh, Matthew 6.33 is seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things shall be added unto you. So when Jesus was preparing his disciples for his departure, remember in the upper room, John chapter 13 to 17, it's all one evening, and he's preparing them for his departure. You remember he promised in uh, uh, John 14, that night he said to them, truly, truly I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Many people read that and what do they say? How do they interpret that? We're, better. We can do better. We're going to do greater works and power than Jesus himself, right? That People in Africa do, I'll tell you that. I spent half a day Almost explaining this. So what what does he mean? Well, we know it's not greater works in power. It's greater works in extent. But the answer is, well, it doesn't say that. Well, the rest of Scripture does. Amen? We can reason from the text. First of all, we just simply look at this and we say, who's Jesus immediately speaking to? It was his disciples in the upper room. Amen? Okay, the Bible wasn't written to us. It was written for us. So he, he's speaking first and foremost to his disciples. And then this letter would go into circulation to the church of the first century. And we already know that the disciples together did not do greater works in power than Jesus. All we have to do is read the text, read Acts. They didn't even come close to doing greater works than Jesus in power. And when we get to the end of John's gospel. We read that, uh, even all the books and all the libraries of the world couldn't contain all that he did. Amen? So, when we, when we go to Jesus' ministry, when he begins, right, his public ministry, he goes into Nazareth and he walks into the synagogue on the Sabbath. He takes the scroll and it's open to Isaiah and he, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. What kind of poor? Spiritually poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Captive to what? Amen. And recovering sight to the blind. What kind of sight? Spiritual. Yes, he healed blind people. But if we read the context of Isaiah, there's something much deeper than just physical healing. To set the liberty, those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He reads Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. And then when we get to John 12, though, verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who's believed what we heard, who, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom is the arm that is the power of God, the arm of the Lord been revealed. That's Isaiah one. Therefore, they could not believe. They would not believe, so they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, citing Isaiah 6, He, God, has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw His glory. Whose glory? Jesus' glory, and spoke of Him. When, when, when Isaiah saw God in his glory in Isaiah 6, John tells us it was Jesus in his glory, the Son of God. Jesus said to the disciples, if you remember, I, I, Caesarea Philippi, I give you the keys to the kingdom. The keys to the kingdom. It was to preach the gospel. The greater works that they would do would, would, would be preaching the gospel to the under ends of the earth, to the four corners of the known world at that time. And Jesus a sliver of land known as Palestine, amen? That was the extent of his public ministry. And this is the primary message. It was preaching the kingdom. Keys to the kingdom, preaching the kingdom. So Luke informs us that during the 40-day period following the resurrection, Acts 1-3, he spoke about the kingdom of God. He spoke about the kingdom. Luke goes on to tell us that the early church also described in chapter 8 verse 12 is that they preach the good news of the kingdom. Okay, They preach the good news of the kingdom. And this is the greater works and extent that Jesus was talking about in that upper room. Okay, We know this, amen? This is very important that we understand this. In Ephesus, Paul spent three months in the synagogue, the scripture says, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Later, Acts 28 says that for two years, boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 28, 31. They continued to work. They continued to preach the kingdom. They had the keys of the kingdom. And the keys of the kingdom are what what unlock the blindness to paganism. Clearly, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is a major theme throughout the Bible. And this expression, kingdom of God, occurs 65 times in the New Testament, 65 times, primarily in the first three Gospels and Acts. Matthew, he uses the expression kingdom of heaven because when Matthew wrote, who was his primary audience? Jews, that's right, Jews, and they had a problem or even doubts about using the name God, <laughs> right? So he most likely uses kingdom of heaven regarding his primary audience. Both John and Paul use the expression kingdom of God. John 3, Galatians 5, Colossians 4, 2 Corinthians 1, okay? So here's all this teaching about the kingdom. So what does it mean? What does it mean? First and foremost, this petition, thy kingdom come, uh, alludes to the sovereign rule of God as king over the universe, amen? He's the Lord of glory. Nothing is outside of his sovereign control. Not a thing. Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, before Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What did he say? Thank you. All power and all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go. Amen? Therefore, go. And as you're going, make disciples. That's the primary command. Make disciples as you're going. I have power, all power, all authority over heaven and earth. So, we see an invitation to embrace the kingdom in every aspect of our lives as kingdom children. Amen? That's why we see all these imperatives, uh, commands, speaking to believers. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's an imperative. That is a command to those who are in Christ, those who are part of the kingdom are commanded to seek first the things of the kingdom. So to pray your kingdom come is to pray that God would use our witness for the expansion of that kingdom. We're carrying on this same work. C.S. Lewis, he he describes this world as, quote, enemy-occupied territory, and Christianity as the story of, of how the rightful king has landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Now, I, I agree with that somewhat, but as, as I thought through this, uh, I would contend with that statement to some degree, um, primarily because when, when Jesus Christ came and established his rightful kingdom, he came first and foremost to destroy Satan, to destroy him. As promised Originally where? Genesis 3. As soon as man fell, there was God. God covers their shame. He sheds blood to cover their shame. Because they were trying to cover their shame with fig leaves, God slays living creatures, animals, to, to cloak them, to cover them in animal skins. Jesus covers our sin. It was a picture, a foreshadowing of the one who would come to cover our shame and cover our sin. I, he said to Satan, will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and in the process, you will bruise his heel. The suffering servant would come and he would suffer. A bruise to the heel compared to the crushing of the head of Satan. So that was promised. And very little attention, unfortunately, is given to this particular feature of the kingdom rule of Jesus Christ. It's unfortunate. And it was made manifest by Jesus coming and casting out demons. There is not demon oppression today like there was then. Sorry. He came. And remember the response. Do you remember the response? I know, I'm I'm sorry I'm preaching. I'm not trying to preach. I'll preach next hour. The demons begged him. You remember, they begged him. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. In Luke eight, Jesus asked the, the you remember the Gadarene who was possessed, right? He asked the demon in the Gadarene, "What's your name?" If you Jesus asked the question. It's not because he doesn't know. He was commanding that he identify himself. What is your name? And he said, legion. Because many demons had entered him, and they begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. That was the demons begging. A legion in an army, a Roman army, was 6,000. So this dude was filled with a demon by the name of legion, meaning many. That's why he was out of his mind running around naked in the tombs, in a, in a graveyard, cutting himself. You know, people who cut themselves, cutters. He's out of his mind. Jesus said in Luke eleven eighteen 18 to the Pharisees who accused him of casting out demons and doing miracles in the name of Beelzebul, in the name of Satan, doing, casting out Satan in the power of Satan but a house divided, Jesus said, can I what? Stand. Stand. The strong man was Satan. He bound the strong man so he could ransack his house. Amen? That's what Jesus did when he came. And Jesus said this, Luke 8, eleven eighteen. but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom came with the king. And it was manifested then by the casting out of demons. In process to destroy Satan. And ultimately would destroy him where? At the cross. That's where he would crush his head. So his, his kingdom was established, made manifest by his power, along with the power of his resurrection. John 3 8. First John, rather. 3 eight, first First John 3 eight. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work to destroy the devil's work Colossians 2 15 having disarmed the powers and authorities he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross the cross so to pray your kingdom come is to recognize first and foremost that Christ has won the war Okay, that's why I, I, I differ a bit with Lewis's statement there. He's a brilliant guy. I'm not I'm nowhere close to a C.S. Lewis. Nevertheless, I can disagree with him if I want to <laughs> by looking at scripture. Christ won the war. And the reality of his reign must first begin in the hearts of in the hearts of sinful men and women. Amen? The kingdom is first established here. Here. Right here. Spiritually. So while we should glorify God's name on earth, we are not able to do so in and of ourselves. Amen? There's no way that we can do so in and of ourselves. God's kingdom must first be established in our hearts Because you can't honor God unless he does this great change, this salvific change that is supernatural. Can any man do that work? No. Remember what Jesus said in John 3 to Nicodemus? Quite simply, when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, representing really the Sanhedrin. And he said... Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God was with him. Jesus, as I said a hundred times, did not say, you know, Nicodemus, you're so insightful. You're correct, that is true. No, he gets to the point. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot perceive it, he cannot receive it, and he'll never enter into it unless he's born again from above. Amen? the one way work of god not not synergistic not not we put in a little and he does a little monergistically imposed the spirit of god coming to the sinner transforming the heart causing him to be born again he enters into the kingdom unless that work is done you you can't glorify god in the kingdom he's the king of the kingdom He determines who's in it, and he does this work, and then we're enabled to submit to his rule and reign. Amen? Kids of the kingdom. So God's kingdom comes progressively to individuals in a particular sequence. We read this throughout the Gospels and Epistles. There's the general call of the Gospel, right? How will they hear without a preacher? Amen? Uh, Romans 10. The preacher goes out. He preaches the kingdom. He preaches the Gospel. And then the word preached uh, upon God's sovereign rule and sovereign choice enters the mind revealing the mystery of the Gospel that Christ is the fulfillment and therefore we read faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God specifically the words of Christ so there's the general call that goes out to all and then there's what's known as the effectual call that actually that actually changes the, the, the very the, the very nature of the sinner he's been given ears to hear he's been given eyes to see and he's transformed and the kingdom now is established. Amen? The kingdom is established in. he's able to see the kingdom. He's able to perceive it and he's now a recipient. He's part of it. This is grace. This is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that replaces a dead heart of stone with a living heart of flesh. Just as Ezekiel promised. Just as was promised from Jeremiah. This new covenant promise of God, justifying the sinner, declaring him free from all blame, sanctifying the sinner, setting him apart as God's, making him or or her more and more holy, one day to be glorified, justified, sanctified, glorified. So in one sense, the kingdom is a present reality, amen? Amen. So we pray, thy kingdom come. It's a present reality, and that is his kingdom of grace and his saving work in the hearts of the spiritual remnant of God. This is what we pray. Lord, we pray your kingdom come. In another sense, the kingdom's future. In one sense, it's present. In another sense, it's future. There's the already and the not yet. And the kingdom is awaiting, awaiting its future consummation. can't wait. And I'll tell you why in the sermon why I can't wait. 2 <laughs> Peter 3:13, but according to his promise we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells, pure righteousness, no longer tainted with sin, sin will be removed. We've been delivered from the penalty of sin. We've been delivered from the power of sin, and one day we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. Amen? Amen. Whether you die and go be with the Lord before he comes, or whether you're here when he returns and he establishes or or consummates the kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth, sin will be gone. You'll never be tempted again. Glory. 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 So, as we pray this petition, thy kingdom come, there's a twofold meaning. One, the kingdom of grace that God exercises in the hearts of his elect. Amen? This is what Peter says. 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Context of Peter's letter? The elect of God. Amen? He's not, is, is some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. And every single person who is his elect will reach repentance. Amen? And when the last person chosen before the foundation of the earth reaches repentance, new heaven and new earth, baby. Right? That's why we preach. That's why I preach. That's why when I preach to the church, you want to build them up in the faith, but I never presume everybody in every seat is saved. Right? Well, you preach like we're not saved. If you're saved, I'm not preaching to you. Right? So number one, the kingdom of grace, the kingdom, in one aspect, is the kingdom of grace that God establishes in the hearts of sinners like me and like you, redeemed, purchased, and two is the kingdom of glory that will be ushered in at Christ's glorious return. We also see that in 2 Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, right? Will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heaven, heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the work that are done on it will be exposed, 2 Peter 3.11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There it is. So we see everything that precedes that verse. So praying, beloved, your kingdom come, is recognizing that Christ has won the war. Amen? Christ has won the war, but yet the reign, the reality of his reign, is not yet fully realized. All power and authority is his, but it will be one day fully manifest. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is... Lord, to the glory of the Father. Whether they believe him or not. So we, 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 we dwell between D-Day and V-Day. Amen? <laughs> D-Day and V-Day. World War II, it, it, the Normandy invasion, June 6th, 1944, has been viewed as a pivotal moment of World War II. We've come to call it D-Day because that day... The result of the war was decided, okay, but the war didn't end until a year later, V-Day. V-E-Day, victory in Europe, V-Day, V-J-Day, victory in Japan. Victory Day did not occur until May 1945. So between D-Day and V-Day, there were still, being, there were still battles being fought. Lives of the Allied forces were, were being lost, D-Day had come. V-Day was yet to come. And in like manner, as Oscar Coleman put it, quote, "So so it was with Jesus in his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, God had overthrown Satan. God planted his flag in the form of the cross, and Jesus said, it is finished. The war is over. But the mop-up, the aftermath, still continues until Jesus returns, until V-Day. Amen? So we live between the triumph of the cross and the termination of the time between D-Day and V-Day, so to speak. This is where we dwell. So history, beloved, is racing towards that glorious and climactic end when the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord. And again, every knee will bow. Not every knee will bow in belief as far as salvific belief. But they will acknowledge he is the king. He is the rightful king. And many of them will be ushered right into hell, to the lake of fire, who rejected the king. The king of glory. John, the apostle, was given the, 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 the glorious vision of the consummation while on Patmos Island, amen? Remember our study in Revelation? Revelation 21, 2. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said, It is done I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. There's a vision of the consummation of the kingdom given to John when he was suffering. Suffering. So this petition, thy kingdom come, also alludes to The as yet incomplete nature of the kingdom of God. Right? So, in one aspect, it's the already, in the other aspect, it's not yet. We pray for the kingdom to to transform the hearts of the lost for which we once were. Amen. May we never forget that. Amen. We were blind, we were lost, we were oppressed, we were victims. Of Satan, children of Satan. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but what? Made alive. Made alive in Christ. And, 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 and guess who deserved that? Not a one of us. It's grace alone. Amen. So we as Christians live in the time between these two the two great advents of Christ. The incarnation's past, and that's what he was preparing his disciples for in that upper room, remember? The incarnation was coming to a close, as far as his earthly visitation goes, and he would ascend back to the Father and send the Helper, the Holy Spirit. So the incarnation is past the second coming's future. So we live in the last days, as Hebrews chapter 1 tells us. We are those upon whom the end of the ages has dawned, 1 Peter 1 and Hebrews 9. So there is now the already, but there is also the not yet. This is what we have to keep in mind when we pray thy kingdom come. You know, in in, in the Gadarene demoniac, as I mentioned earlier, he recognized this and begged, according to, to Matthew's account, What do you want with us, son of God? And they shouted, Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Interesting. The demons knew the king would come because of the promise of Genesis. Knowing that his heel would be bruised. Knowing that in the process he would crush the head. Of their commander in chief, Satan. So the decisive battle's been won, but the ultimate victory celebration must await the final triumph of Christ, the establishment of a new heaven and a new earth. So when we pray, Your kingdom come, we pray for the power we're praying for, the power and the blessing of the Holy Spirit to accompany, first and foremost, beloved, the preaching of his word. That's why men need to preach the word. Amen? The whole counsel of God. I mean, we have the, this is, these are, this, 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 the keys to the kingdom are right here, amen? The keys to the kingdom, the powers in the word of God. If you ain't preaching it, you got no power in your ministry, Amen? You know, some of the guys in Africa, some of them are on this power trip. They want, a, they want power in their ministry, right? So a lot of them claim to be apostles and power to cast out demons and heal the lame and the sick and raise the dead and all this nonsense. Does God do that? Yeah, absolutely. But I said on day one, I said, look, if you have the title apostle, there's only 12 and they're all in heaven. You're not an apostle, okay? And uh, Dr. Van Horn w- was, after I gave the first lecture, he was like, he goes, I kind of like to save that for day four. <laughs> He's like, I said, it'll be okay, brother. Don't worry about it. <laughs> like, You're going to run them all out of here. I go, that's all right. I said, I said, you want, you want power in your ministry? Do you really want power in your ministry? Paul tells us what power in ministry is. He says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. For salvation to everyone who believes. That's the power of God. The gospel. In the gospel is much more than Jesus loves you and wants to forgive you of all your sins if you believe and trust, right? It doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop in simply reminding God's people that they're forgiven and loved eternally, amen. We begin there and we teach the whole council. And there's power in the gospel. There's power. So we pray that the kingdom of grace would be furthered. We pray that a kingdom life would be furthered in and through us, God's people, amen? We we pray that his graces will create in my own life and in your own lives the reality of being salt and light, that he, by his grace, will wean us, wean us off of what everybody else is attached to, right? The nipple of worldliness, that's what it is, amen? Because we're part of the king, we're part of his kingdom, well, actually, we're part of the kingdom because we're in the king. And we pray that he'll wean us off of a worldly mindset and a worldly attitude as his kings and priests We live in loving response to the one who loved us first, subjecting ourselves in obedience to his commands. Amen? Because we're unable to do so. So we we remind one another of of these things. So we pray. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Amen? Amen. Two minutes for any comments any anybody or questions africa Africa was great it was uh it's a very fruitful ministry i can't say enough about uh um, dr van horn's ministry item um we need to support the ministry i'm going to talk today in the time of giving um this church is a loving church this church needs to give more And I've been told even by congregants, I I never I never talk about giving. This is, you need to talk about giving because you never talk about it. Today I'm going to talk about it. We're a loving church, a great loving church, but we really don't give as we ought when it comes to this, finance. We don't. That's the reality. We need to grow in that, amen? We need to grow in that. Not only here at home, but so that we can go do these things. You know, we wanted to raise $5,000, since you asked. We wanted to raise $5,000 to minister to 600 men, and that cost $14,000 in Africa to do that. That's a lot of bread. Well, that $5,000 came in, but, uh, you know, to be forthright with you, It came from someone who doesn't even go to this church, who heard about it, and we got a check for five grand in the mail, and I was like thanking the Lord because it was like the deadline. He says, look, we can raise this kind of money by this timeline, and it wasn't coming in. It just wasn't coming in, and the Lord provided it through someone else who doesn't. So I want our people, we need to know this, amen, and I want us to know this. Because it's ministry like that that is so fruitful, but it costs money to do that. The gospel's free, as it's been said, but someone's got to put in the plumbing, right? (laughs) Plumbing is underground, behind the walls, (laughs) things you don't see. So it was great, Laura. But it also awakened me to some realities that we have to be mindful of as a people. Amen. Right. And I, you know, I felt like Paul, our church, in in talking about, you know, how church boasted in the Thessalonians. He boasted in them. That's the way I felt over there, boasting in this church because it is so loving. It's a loving church. It's it's a unified church. But we have our weaknesses. This thing's busted. Okay, so let's pray. And uh, Thanks for being here. Father, we do thank you that uh, you are the king of the kingdom. And we are recipients of grace. And Lord, may we never take for granted that grace. We pray that you'd increase within us a greater understanding of the kingdom that has been established, the kingdom that is yet to be made manifest on this earth, the new heaven and the new earth. Help us, Lord, to long for the day, to live in anticipation for the day, but yet to plan and prepare as though your return is a long way off building into, Lord, the next generations of those that will be followers of your, according to your grace, that we be good disciple-makers to glorify your name. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, beloved. Thank you.